welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. I, up top, I wanted to remind people that, of course, uh, there's a copious archive of Expanding Minds uh, on the PRN FM uh, uh, internet dial, as well as my own technosis.com website. And if uh, you want to listen to uh, some recent episodes by phone, feel free to call in one seven zero one seven one nine zero eight nine. 0-701-719-0890 to listen through your phone in a handy-dandy way. Uh, one of the many paradoxes of being a, a, a thinking or trying to be a thinking, soulful being in our world today uh, is that one recognizes that your sort of inherited opinions and responses to the world are in many ways programmed, programmed by perhaps by biology, by sociolog sociological forces, by culture, by your heritage, your privilege, your race, your situation. And so you start to use your reason to maybe critic, critique, deconstruct, interrogate, uh, use uh, uh, rational means to begin to understand how you function. Maybe you look towards cognitive science and you start to recognize things like uh, confirmation bias and how we tend to uh, uh, go towards information that confirms our own opinion. So in, in starting to develop this critical self-consciousness as you try to become more politically aware, as you, as you try to wake up as a person to become more um, conscious of the various forces that push and pull you as an individual, as a political actor, you, you use reason, right? You got to use rationality. You have to think about uh, cognitive science. You have to think about uh, critical models of uh, how sociological forces impact uh, psychology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the paradox, and this is what I'm getting to, is that even as you use your reason uh, and your ration and rationality, which are not the same thing, uh, to deconstruct your inherent subjectivity, you find that you're actually open up a whole realm that seems, well, I won't say irrational, but let's say irrational, um, that the old specters seem to return. Suddenly, dreams and ghosts and intuitions and uh, animist forces and demons and spectral possibilities and fiction to life, suddenly all this strange stuff comes spilling through your own experience and you realize that reason or rationality only gets you so far and that you're also in a, a try, sort of fencing with specters in this suddenly no longer exactly reasonable or rational world. And I think that that reflects a general <laughs> factor about our contemporary situation, our, our, our modernity or, or post-modernity, which is that the uh, the engines of enlightenment, uh, reason and rationality, or at least rationality, uh, have a peculiar capacity to produce radically irrational situations, uh, even dark uh, and spectral ones as well. And so it becomes a very challenging uh, field to navigate. And I would have to say for people who resonate with what I'm saying and are seeking um, some uh, handy tips, perhaps a handbook or two, uh, you could do very much worse uh, than the, uh, uh, the, the uh, dictionary trilogy that was created by our guest today, uh, the Viennese hypermedia researcher Conrad Becker. And there, he, he, uh, he's written a number of books and done music and 
presentations, performances. He's quite an eclectic uh, mind and soul. Um, but some of the easiest uh, ways to get a hold of his stuff are these three dictionaries. He did the Tactical Reality Dictionary, the Strategic Reality Dictionary, and the Dictionary of Operations, uh, which has an introduction by Hakim Bey and a uh, conclusion uh, added by Bifo. And uh, these books are remarkable. Just to like read a, uh, uh, a little bit from the um, uh, table of contents from the uh, Tactical uh, re, from the Dictionary of Operations, we have disembodied voices, empathic processes, human sacrifice, imaginary realists, Kabbalah, Cabal. And what you get are these dense uh, dictionary definitions of concepts that move between political analysis, psychological insight, cognitive science, the logics of control, and the spectral, the occult, the paranormal, as all being part of a continuum of the reality where uh, where reality itself is being engineered. This this kind of world we wake up into only to find ourselves benighted, confused, seduced already by various models of how we engage the world. And so they're they're really dynamite, and they, they have nice, handy, they look like, you know, little handbooks you'd carry with you onto the battlefield of psychic warfare. Uh, and it's only some of the stuff that Conrad's done. I met Conrad uh, back in the oldie days of the 1990s uh, media arts world, which were a very exciting time when a lot of uh, the current conditions were prophesied and attempted to be avoided uh, in various uh, quixotic attempts to uh, create a, a somewhat more humanist and uh, exuberant information society. Uh, and so I, I've, I've been, admired his work from afar for, for many years, and so I thought I'd uh, call him up and uh, check in. So uh, Conrad speaking from his uh, his his uh, bunker in, uh, in in Vienna, uh, surrounded by by pastries and Ouija boards. So, Conrad, uh, welcome to Expanding Mind. Hey, great to be here. Great to be on your program and talk with you again. I know it's been so long. So, you know, there's so many things that you cover, and that's part of what's wonderful about your work is that. You know, you, it's not like a sort of dry exegesis of concepts. It's almost a kind of poetry of critique and insight and analysis uh, that gives you lots of tools to understand and at the same time kind of pulls the rug out from under you, letting you loose into this kind of strange condition of, of you know, of, of the sort of hypermedia drift. But I thought one place to start is a figure that comes up a lot uh, in your in your work, and I think is a really important way to start to understand this connection between the modern rational sciences of control and manipulation and the occult or the spectral or the phantasmic, and that's the figure of Giordano Bruno. Um, and uh, you know he comes up a lot in some in, in in your work. And what is it about Bruno and his concepts of? of how magic works, what magic really is, that helps us see this connection between our modern science of, of, of propaganda and manipulation and this, and this spectral world of the phantasm. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, he certainly was an interesting character, you know, uh, a contrarian for sure, and he was uh, ready to stand up for that. But apart from that, he was an interesting figure because he kind of 
thought about uh, manipulation and magic in a very, let's say, modern way. Uh, uh, you could think of him as like an early theorist of mass manipulation. Uh, and he had this kind of con concept of, <clears throat> of a kind of system of transactional bonding. Uh, basically, I would say a concept of, of some kind of a, a libidinal economy where you kind of, you know, uh, whether it's a kind of a form of, a, of, of influence and a, and, a, and a hunt, let's say. So uh, he's kind of a, just an, a very interesting historical figure to, to look for this thing. Yeah, I remember first reading about him in uh, Ion Kuliano's book, Eros and Magic in the Renaissance, which is still one of my favorite books about uh, magic, and I think really important one to understand culture and 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 what Kuliano talks about, if I remember, is um, this libidinal economy you're describing is the idea that you can use symbols that are charged with desire, and so that people's their own in in inherent eros, their their desire, their 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 you know their sort of the the juiciness of their lives can be triggered and bonded, and even talks about chains through certain kinds of symbols. So that you understand magic is not some, you know, we don't need to think about it as some supernatural world of, you know, fully autonomous ontological others who are, you know, ex existing in some other realm and, and interacting with our world. It's, you can also understand it as like systems of signs and symbols that are charged with energy, charged with desire. And then if you got get those things correctly uh, set up, you can control not just individuals, but masses. Um, and you're like, wow, gee, that sounds pretty, uh, pretty modern indeed. I mean, from that, we have this whole history that you, that you, you know, cover so well and so evocatively of propaganda, of, of advertising, of the sort of coding of our own, uh, desires. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, and I mean, I guess it it, it begs this, this other question that comes up a lot in your work, which is how, why, why is magic and the occult and the the weird stuff still so important as a way to understand what's going on on a much larger scale in terms of our our kind of postmodern society, our digital world domination world. Well, I mean, obviously, uh, this connection you made to Culliano is, is very good because it shows kind of this connection to kind of modern advertisement industry, right? It's kind of, we're, we're, we're supposed to be living in an information age, which is rather more a disinformation age. Uh, and it's definitely something that has to do with manipulating our uh, dis desires, right? Uh, and so that has become a, a, on, a, on a very professional level. And... I mean, you know, about this, uh, about this kind of, you know, uh, are we really in a disenchanted world? I, I'm not sure, you know. I think we're probably in a more enchanted world than ever in, in many aspects, you know. There's uh, more biological and technological actors trying to influence the fabric of human reality than ever before. Uh, there's so-called invisible software demons uh, overshadowing every human interaction right now. Uh, you know, even, even Rumpelstiltskin has a Twitter account now, and uh, 
trolls are populating presidential palaces and uh, you know this nice and clean modernist world of reason uh, where is it if you need it you know i i, I wonder but uh, i'm pretty sure we're not in a secular age you know i mean there's this kind of theory of, of secularization but really this there's a new wave of of, of fundamentalist beliefs uh, that are you know kind of um, permeating uh rationality technological systems uh, it's it's a new religious tradition that is kind of this reductionist uh, pictures that science paints you know of of clear borders of of a, of a kind of a logocentric purity and uh, so we're living in a very occult world and it's uh, you know it's it's it, it helps to understand it if you look at some of the ancient uh, examples of that and uh, you know there's this fascinating continuity of course of uh, of people who work in the information business let's say you know uh, like spies uh, or you know information agency there is a connection between the spooks and the spooky that goes back uh, you know not not just for centuries but for eons basically yeah, absolutely. That was that was that was really, you know, wonderfully said. Especially the point, and and this is what I I think about a lot because I'm I'm fascinated by a lot of contemporary like rationalist cultures. So these aren't by this I mean not the people who are you know um, creating the systems necessarily that are org organizing the world or are trying to optimize or efficient you know make more efficient systems of regulation and that whole kind of zone. I mean people who are who believe that given the na human nature that the best thing to do is to be as rationalist as possible, the kind of, you know, less wrong crowd or the radical skeptic crowd or the radical atheist crowd. And what's uh, fascinating to me about them is that if you, you know, if you read the material and then this is not true for, for all and by any means, it's, I don't, I don't mean to generalize, but still, if you, if you look at it from a certain angle, it really just looks like another religion. And in fact, in some ways it can drive people to like really kind of, very uh, imaginistic uh, positions. And so even the attempt to get out of the irrational human nature through reason or rationality itself becomes kind of part of the enchanted world. And just one example is if we start thinking about memes, right? So that's a big part. That was a big part of the alt-right, a big part of the American election, the memes, Pepe the Frog, and the, this kind of meme magic that was going on. It's an interesting phrase, meme magic. Okay, why? Well, because on some level, the idea of the meme is a very social scientific, very rational notion. Just like there's genes, there are these units of of cultural meaning, of language, of signs, and, you know, they can be propagated through human minds. So human minds are just hosts of these memes. Okay, that, that seems like a very rational way of thinking, and you can use that maybe to organize a political campaign or something. But if you, if you think about it with this, these enchanted lenses, these we, we have never been modern lenses, you go, those memes are just like they're little agents. They're little demons. They're little creatures. They're you know virtual spirits that inhabit your 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 mind stream. And if you take them in and you buy them, then they're going to parasite off of you. It suddenly becomes really magical once again. And it's almost like you can't escape uh, these sort of spectral realities, even though the mainstream world seems to pretend that we're in a secular age and that we've transcended them. It's a very weird paradox. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, this whole thing with rationality is uh, not just a myth, but really a big swindle, you know, kind of. Uh, and we are, we are kind of recently our group has been working on this kind of digital rule systems, you know, how rationality is encoded in, in let's say, algorithms. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of our speakers, uh, their title was Algorithms Are Not Angels. Uh, so he obviously wanted to make a point, you know, that these invisible rule systems don't just come from, from heaven, you know. I would actually make a point that they come from hell, you know, because there's actually... People don't understand that there is different forms of rationality. And, uh, you know, we could just as well say that this one comes from hell, you know, that is encoded in uh, a lot of what is now our technological systems. Yeah, well, let, let's go into that a little bit more. And I also want to say before we, we, we embark that uh, people can look uh, for one of the program, uh, programs that World Information, uh, the World Information Institute has put together, which is one of Conrad's groups called Painted by Numbers. And it's a, it was a, an installation and a, a kind of conference, I believe, about algorithms, um, which are really, the, the, you know, the secret drivers of our increasingly less secret drivers of our world. Uh, but one of the wonderful things about Painted by Numbers is online. There's some great videos with a lot of very, very smart people who are introducing really important ideas about the limitations and the assumptions that are programmed into algorithms. Because like so many, you know, this is one place to start with a question for you, Conrad, is like it's like so many aspects of contemporary ideology or, or the digital ideology is that algorithms are presented as if they're kind of you know, perfectly rational uh, efficiency machines when they're actually encoded with all sorts of assumptions, of axioms about what human beings are, about what the good is, and yet we're handing our, over more and more uh, power and decision-making power in particular to them. So what were some of the main ideas about algorithms that you were trying to get out there through Painted by Numbers and your, in your other work on these sorts of decision trees and their, their roots in uh, Cold War ideology? Right. Well, I mean, one reason, obviously, because our group is kind of dealing with, with the question, what is technology doing with culture and our minds for a long time, right? And, and algorithms are kind of so much embedded everywhere, and we, did, we don't seem to notice them. But obviously, we know, you know, every time we go to social media, there will be an algorithm sort of doing something for us, uh, uh, basically shaping our cognitive environment. And so there's a lot of things that has, uh, you know, that uh, have, have to do with this question, what are algorithms doing? And it has to do with reason uh, and, and, and uh, with agency, like who's doing what, right? Uh, a machine. Uh, also that these kind of things are, are generating, they're actually creating realities in the sense that these are kind of based of mo on models, uh, usually very primitive, simplistic models. But they, they go from a descriptive model to a predictive model. So it's all this kind of oracular situation. And by predicting the future, they kind of make the future, they colonize the future, right? And so I found it personally very, very useful kind of to give a historical dimension to these questions of, of rationality and reason and objectivity. And... Uh, 
you know, a, a lot of people are not aware that the concept of what is objective is also actually subject to historical change. Uh, there's actually a very interesting book by uh, Lorraine Dayston, you know, who she, she kind of traces, I'm not going into that now, but she kind of traces the understanding of what is seen as objective, and it does change over time, right? And, and with rationality, uh, it's, 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 it's a very sort of interesting point. I find that you can locate a lot of what we now have defined as rational logic and as reasonable uh, based on Cold War game theory, right? Uh, so that's, that's where kind of in the you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, there was all this research into, into uh, decision-making theories and, uh, uh, you know, uh, game theory came up and that's obviously very much uh, related also to uh, our whole uh, understanding of economics or what we have now as neoliberal economics. And the interesting point, you know, I mean, when game theory in the Cold War, everybody knows the term mad, you know, this kind of strange love term which is short for mutually assured destruction. And, you know, if that sounds already quite bad, it was actually just a stepping stone to uh, something called nuts, you know, and nuts is short for using nuclear utilization target selection. So it actually means using bombs, you know, to kill everyone off. And uh, with this, you know, I mean, I'm just personally fascinated that this is kind of such a historic point where at the same time when there was this militarization of outer space, you know, with con transcontinental ballistic missiles and all this stuff, there was this kind of uh, surge to colonize inner space. Uh, I mean, the whole psychedelic revolution uh, happened in that time, right? Uh, with all this kind of uh, synthetic psychedelics being produced uh, in the same military laboratories. Uh, it was about, uh, you know, applying techniques of, of brainwash, of, of, of lobotomy, of, of splitting the brains, and actually splitting the social atom also, not just splitting the atom itself. So a lot of these kind of social systems and theory of, theories of action come from a totally paranoid sort of war situation. And uh, there's also actually uh, an interesting book by, by Lorraine Dayson, the same author, How Reason Lost Its Mind, The Strange Career of Cold War Rationality, that kind of describes a little bit this really weird environment uh, that sort of created the spirit of the control systems that we're subjected to now. Yeah, I mean, one. I think one of the points that that, I, that really set off a light for me when I was doing kind of similar, similar research uh, is how some of these game theory ideas they they model decision based on the idea that the actor who's making the decision is purely self-interested and so there's a kind of assumption about what it, it, when you apply to human be, to human behavior like what human beings are doing and that those models are now incredibly widespread in, throughout neuroeconomics through all this cognitive science through all of these uh, marketing mechanisms. i mean there's it's just this massive distribution of this a kind of model of how selves or how individuals choose or what their motivations are and it's like it, it's it's like again it's that that place where description becomes prediction where the the algorithms are already acting as if we are like this and, and it 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 kind of crushes the possibility that human agency itself can be different we that we can act collectively that we can act out of uh, with exuberant 
chaos. We can act with radical passion. You know, all, all these other modalities become kind of boiled down to this simple model. But if you talk to people who are in social science or, or in marketing or whatever, it's just, it's just absolutely fact that this is just the way things are and that the only way to model how human beings behave is according to these, this kind of competitive concept of the self-interested self. Yeah, that's uh, kind of really weird. There's this kind of concept of a so-called rational citizen that's kind of this set theoretic definitions, right? And basically all these formula exclude any social utility. So anything that's nice for humans is not part of the formula. So it's kind of basically anti-human formula, right? And it's based on a so-called objective science, which is sort of representing this absolute truth of given universal laws. And so there's actually no necessity for any humans uh, involved in the formula. Yeah, it's uh, it's very – so t t talking a little bit more about um, algorithms, do you get the sense that people are starting to kind of un like, you know, whatever, more mainstream people, people who are not necessarily interested in critical media history and um, are, are starting to get a sense of it? Because it feels to me like even across in the, in the mainstream, at least the mainstream media that my little bubble includes, that there's kind of an awareness that uh, you know, ju like just the, that idea of like media bubbles and the, the you know, you're, you're, you're going to surround yourself with people who support your own opinion and that um, the kind of uh, algorithmic drivers that create these sort of uh, opinion communities are also rampant in the, the world at large. Do you see some opening up there where there's more of a critical understanding of the distortion factor that's introduced by our decision to hand over our decisions to algorithms? Well, actually, you know, uh, people are still surprised to hear that algorithms actually have a bias or that algorithms can be racist. I mean, of course. I mean, how would they not be racist, you know, if they are actually produced within a racist system, you know? And even... If you have an algorithm, you know, that would tell you uh, something useful, you know, if the owner of the algorithm doesn't have any profit, then it, this algorithm wouldn't tell you, you know. And it's, it, it goes much further than just kind of, you know, this kind of strange uh, social filter bubbles. It's kind of related to, you know, things like health insurance and uh uh, you know, this kind of uh, uh, predictive policing kind of security elements. It's, it's, it's really built in in, 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 in this kind of whole uh, competitive logic. And it's not so much, I mean, again, I think, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a hard subject because also there's no, there's really no easy solutions for that. You know, I mean, in fact, I, you know, there's not even something you could say, okay, let's not have algorithms because if we deal with this kind of amount of information that we all have to deal with, which is, you know, more than any human person in the world can ever scan through. So you, actually you want filters, right? And I mean, I, I come from this background of, of you know, uh, of uh, activism around issues of privacy and, and, and you know, policy issues and, uh, you know, this it, it was very hard on that level, you know, and the copyright and all this issue. With, with algorithms, it's probably even one step harder, you know. So uh, no easy solutions. But uh, that doesn't mean we, sh we shouldn't look into these things. 
No, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I actually am curious a little bit more about your background because I know you've you've done a lot of you've sort of crossed the line between sort of critical theorist, intellectual activist, and also well, and and activist, and then also uh, involved in the arts. I mean, you, you know, you were you were in you were in Das Boot, which is hilarious to me. Uh, that I remember when that movie came out, it was great. But you and you've done uh, really interesting electronic uh, work, and you've done some performances. Based on this material, meaning that you rather than giving a, a public lecture, you'll do a seance where you're kind of dealing with the same themes, but it's with the sort of performative occult uh, uh, dimension. So I, I'd love to hear maybe just from your your own history, but but just your ideas about how, given all issues, and we've there's so many more that we could talk about that you have addressed, but given all these like you know heavy issues that require a lot of intellectual engagement, that require a lot of knowledge of science and, and social science. And at the same time, hey, how do we deal with this? How do we how do we how do we become activists that are trying to raise awareness or make interventions? And for you, part of that has involved the arts, has involved performance rather than just, you know, argument and critique. So how do you how how in your career have you kind of modulated between a more performance an arts perspective versus a critical theoretical perspective? Well, um, how to answer that? I mean, basically, I guess I always had uh, an approach that you could uh, call transdisciplinary, you know? I mean, uh, I, I, I always found it an insult to be put into some kind of drawer, you know, or category or genre, actually. Uh, so, you know, I guess um, that's 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 a concept I've been following, and that's that's also kind of a, a thing in in like working in our group. You know, we we don't want to be academics. Uh, you know, we're not just activists. Uh, we're certainly not artists. Uh, so I mean, this this kind of uh, idea of keeping things open uh, uh, that that was always an, an interest of me and. Uh, I mean, sometimes it comes uh, across as an anomaly, I guess, but I, I have no problem with anomalies. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's well put. That's that's why it should be a, a it's a good uh, good uh, tag for someone. I have no problem with anomalies. But I'm curious. Tell me a little bit about uh, if I had gone to the, the the seances that you did around the the, the theater of operations when the uh, dictionary of operations came out. What did you do in these performances? Well, you know, I'm I'm kind of, uh, I mean, I, I yeah, I'm, I'm I'm kind of doing all the crossovers, you know, between lectures and performances and and all this kind of stuff. And well, I have a, you know, I have this kind of uh, interest in the history of illusionism uh, from you know the very old days. You know, there's kind of Heron of Alexandra. Um, you know, who, who built these extremely interesting high-tech magical machines, you know, in, to impress people in, in temples to the magical surveys of, of, of a, like a Robert Houdin in, in Paris in the, in the 19th century. Uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite fascinated by all this kind of stage uh, magic from previous times, also the Phantasmagoria, you know, it, it's kind of a, a precursor of, of virtual reality and also in you know relating to this kind of 19th century media phenomenon uh that was 
it was kind of really strange because on some of these stages, you know, this was kind of a showcase for for high tech uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, you would should see X-ray on stage or, uh, you know, this kind of more Frankenstein type of things where dead bodies were made to dance by electricity. And and then there was kind of the, the thing where the medium was the message, you know, there was this kind of uh, uh, mediums uh, in the sense of, uh, you know, usually uh, ladies, uh, uh, they had this kind of mysterious erotic performances producing ectoplasma, you know, oozing out from from their bodies. And uh, this was a time when when a lot of these things were still very undefined, you know, like a, a, a scientific hardhead like Thomas Edison was saying, oh, you know, about radio, if we can make a radio that is like really, really f delicate, then we would hear the people, you know, uh, from from the next life or from the other life, you know. So, and obviously this there's this kind of whole uh, sort of tradition. I mean, Houdin was the name patron of Houdini, of course, and uh, I'm I'm very much interested in in the whole history of escape artists, you know, because uh, in in a world of Tina, uh, Tina standing for uh, there is no alternative, you know. I think to be Escaping an, an impossible situation is really a skill that, that uh, is very useful. So again, that's kind of the whole situation. With and so uh, I had a I had a female medium, a young singer, you know, who was kind of channeling uh, uh, information related to the uh, theaters of possession and uh, you know the control of object and subject uh, and about zombies and uh, about ghosts. Uh, and that was all in a setting where, you know, tables were hovering over the stage and basically kind of a smoke and mirror situation. And uh, you already understand, I love smoke and mirrors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very much so. No, I, I love that. That was that was really uh, well described. There's so much to say about that, that period of time, too, and the whole history of illusionism in the 19th century. Another interesting thing about Houdin, of course, is that he was brought by the French government to North Africa explicitly in a kind of magical battle where it was like the, the resistant Algerian, you know, people, they had their own magic workers, you know, they had their own, their own shakes, their own sort of mystic, powerful political leaders. And so it was sort of like that, that Western illusionism, which could both create these effects and then claim to be merely a, a rational manipulation of, of, of fallible human psychology, that that was sort of pitted against these more traditional uh, magic users. And it's, it's, it gets so tricky once you start looking at this, this uh, boundary that never stays still between rational manipulation and the kind of seduction um, by the unconscious. And, uh, and so it's, it's great that you've like, that you play on, on that, on that line. And it comes through the, the text very much as well, where you, you, you know, you're reading intellectual material, it's cognitive, it's, it's conceptual, it's critical. And at the same time, it starts to get very weird and, and very, uh, you know, uh, kind of spooky, uh, in a way. And that, to me, that, that triggers something else that you've been working on. I know that that um, it's also a topic we've dealt with a lot on the show. It's a fascinating one. Is this this blur between between fictions and reality? How fictions take on 
reality, you know, in, in human culture in general, you know, look at re- history of religion or whatever. But today that that whole magic, if you will, or the, the kind of way in which fictions can be thickened into real actors um, on so many different levels is almost being like consciously exploited in all these different levels. Um, so I know you've done some recent work on the on the fiction and reality connection. What what are some of the ways that you approach this uh, this topic? Yeah, right. Well, um, you know, I actually that th- that's a good point that you you made about Houdin Houdin being sent to Algeria in the in the colonial war as a sort of secret weapon, right, with his illusionism. And uh, I'm I'm certainly very interested in this concept of kind of a magical imperialism and. Uh, Incidentally, uh, the, the, the term magical imperialism was uh, coined by a certain John Dee, right, in the uh, 16th century, basically. Uh, and that's, that's one of a, a key historical figure that shows this connection between, you know, this kind of modern information influencing business uh, to the ancient spooks and spies who were usually, you know... Uh, very informed, uh, um, uh, you know, scientists of their time. They were, were cartographers. They were stenographers, uh, cryptographers, uh, uh, all that kind of skills. And with with John Dee, it's very funny that he had this concept of, of establishing a, a global wireless uh, communication network uh, based on angelic scripts, sort of kind of uh, encrypted communication. So, uh, well, you know. Again, I think, you know, with the modern forms of political control and uh, restrictions management is, is very much based on concept of fear and longing, uh, you know, and uh, that kind of goes back to Giordano Bruno, I guess. Uh, and uh, I mean, it, it, it controls our movement. It controls the way how we can think. Uh, and uh, actually... You know, I, 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 I read a piece from you uh, that I, I remember where, about Lovecraft, where you were saying that for Lovecraft, it's not the sleep of reason that breeds monsters, but reason with its eyes agog, you know. <laughs> I, I think that's, that's, that's very much describing it, you know. We're kind of uh, in this kind of magical control systems with our eyes wide open. And uh, on another note, there's actually a very nice uh, documentary movie from Adam Curtis called The Trap. And uh, it shows how a simplistic model of human beings as self-seeking robotic creatures kind of defines our ideas of, of freedom, of, of our, our ideas of what we can do in this world. And uh, that's kind of, uh, you know, a very abstract form of how our, you know, existence in this world is limited and uh, i guess that's a little bit magical yeah well, well i'm curious what, how you adam curtis's films really kind of blow my mind it, it's still like i mean i have issues with certain ways in which he tells stories and i'm i'm more he, he doesn't like the the west coast hippie stuff too much and i'm a little bit you know that's kind of my tribe so i'm i'm, I'm a little resistant to some of his uh way that he writes off that side of things but but I still I love that I love the stuff that he's done and it kind of blows my mind that he's been as successful in the quote unquote mainstream as he has that he's been able to continue to fund these documentaries that that it's from certain angles 
almost I mean, I'm saying they're like conspiracy theory, but they're they're definitely counter normative. And yet he still managed to kind of make them in a, in a way that a lot of people pay attention to. He said, do you have any like, you know, do you, do you have a better understanding of, of how he's managed to pull that off? I mean, it, it seems like he's been very successful with some similar ideas or some critical ideas that you're that you're talking about. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of in a way, you know, it's, you're not the only one that is astonished that he's out there, right? I mean, I, I don't have the, I don't have any truth about this. I'm just uh, understanding that he somehow got in this position to basically mine the archive of the BBC, which is obviously a great position to be in. And, uh, you know, I mean, probably people take it on different levels because, uh, I mean, uh, Maybe some people see it just as kind of a video essay on a, on a more aesthetic level, but I, I definitely think that he he has uh, he puts these things together in an extremely I mean sometimes speculative of course you know and people say okay there is sort of uh, gaps in between but that's in my view that's not the point uh, I think he does a very good job I, I, I'm I don't think he's exactly mainstream you know I mean if you have right. kind of if you do a good work and you have access to the BBC archive, you know, I mean, you're kind of bound to, to have sort of an audience. And obviously, they didn't kill him off yet. He's he's still happily working in the archive. I understand. So, uh, and I I don't think there are too many people who kind of take up this you know way of 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 looking at the world. And uh, you know, he actually he takes up a lot of the things that uh, you know, I, we both have now been talking and that I've been researching over the, uh, over the years. And I'm, so I'm, I'm, so I'm, I'm very pleasantly surprised. Uh, but I don't think he's you know, actually, you know, there's surprisingly lots of people who don't know him. Let's put it yeah. this way. That, that, that's fair. That's fair. That, that's fair. Uh, you know, one of the things that made me think about it, about uh, his, his stuff and, and yours, is one of the reasons I think it's so important is that without models for how to occupy this space where you are critical of these mechanisms of control, which implies that you're also critical of how your own reactions are programmed and you start to have to develop your own sort of critical understanding of your own experience, that it's very easy for people who who start to ask these questions, who start to tune into these systems of control, who start to wonder about the, the real form that power takes in the world, it's very easy to get sidetracked into what, for lack of a better term, I'll call conspiracy culture. And, uh, you know, it's hard, it's hard to exactly where do you draw the line between Adam Curtis' documentary and conspiracy theory or your work and conspiracy theory, but the line is there. And... I think what hap- what's happening to a lot of people now, one of the reasons we're seeing this rise of conspiracy is not that, pe- you know, oh, there's so much false news or that people no longer trust the mainstream media. Yeah, those are factors. But I think part of it is also that people are waking up to the ways in which they are controlled. Their decisions are controlled. Their psychology is controlled. But they don't really have the kind of magical, critical sophistication to be able to ride that awareness and not sort of seek the kind of um, satisfaction of a fixed story about who's actually in control. 
Um, and so people get kind of drawn into these sort of uh, gravity wells of stories about, oh, it's the fluoride in the system or it's contrails or it's the, the lizards behind the, the British throne or whatever the conspiracies are. It's like once you actually, quote unquote, know the answer, then you're kind of resolved in a way. You don't you don't have to worry as much because, you know, whereas the space that we're talking about where we raise all these questions really profound questions about how decision is, who, where agency is, you, you don't get to know. You don't get to then feel like, ah, now I figured it out. It's like you're just opening up a constant questioning, probing, you know, uh, intuitive way of navigating. And it's really important to have models of how to do that and not just kind of switch over into another system. And so that's my little rant to at, as a way of asking you Personally, you know, whether from an intellectual perspective or even a psychological side, how the temptations of paranoia and conspiracy have sort of functioned for you as you've done the kind of work that does lead a lot of people towards really intense forms of conspiracy or, or paranoia, which you've clearly kept at bay in your own work. And yet you've been doing this long enough in a scary enough world that undoubtedly you kind of have felt these tendrils. So I'd love to hear how you kind of manage the that side of doing the sort of research that you're doing. Yeah, well, you know, I could quote William Boros, who said only the paranoids have all the facts. Um, or I, I could quote uh, a, a CEO from a big tech company who said only the paranoids survive. Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, on, 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 on one level, you know, I think it's it's just a very crude mechanism of sidelining uh, all discourse that is not mainstream. You know, it's kind of this very establishment bourgeois, you know, uh, way of marginalizing everyone that doesn't follow mainstream op opinion. You know, I mean, uh, basically, you know, if you if you are a person who looks for connections and influences uh, in, in complex systems uh, and to see connections that other people don't see or have not seen so far, you know, you could either be called a paranoid or a scientist because that's exactly what, what a scientist is doing, you know. I mean, if you're a researcher and you're not looking for connections between things that other people have not seen before, you know, you're not, you're not much of a scientist anyway, right? And uh, so we have to do and deal now with a higher level of complexity, you know? I mean, there is parallel narratives. Uh, and, you know, if, if, if a narrative is too simple, you know, I mean, I know there's this whole theory of, 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 of beauty in, 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 in formulas and Occam's razor, etc. you know? But if, this, if, the, if the narrative is too simple, it might be just stupid, you know, and, and not very helpful. Uh, that could be one way of looking at these things. And, you know, dealing with complexity, I think it's, uh, and with ambiguity, and with being able to, you know, look at different perspectives. I mean, that's, uh, it's challenging, you know. Uh, I mean, again, if we look into the world of information professionals, let's say spies, you know, they are totally always in this kind of situation where they have to think, what is somebody else thinking, you know? And if, if what is this other person thinking, what I'm thinking? So this is also called the wilderness of mirrors, right? Uh, 
And actually, in the professional spy world, there's this concept that if people are too long by, their, by themselves out there, you know, in the spy world, uh, they have to be brought back, you know, just for reasons of, of, of keeping them sane, you know, for, for their mental health. And actually, there's a, a whole history where a lot of the spy chiefs, you know, ended up in a sanatorium, basically, you know, or they, they were getting electroshocks uh, just to keep them, you know, back on Earth. Uh, uh, a lot of the spy chiefs get into psychotic episodes. So it's a dangerous territory. Live with it. Yeah. Do you, what are your, what are your strategies? What are your, you know, I know what I mean. I'm, I do think I meditate that helps. I, uh, I allow myself to go crazy. Sometimes I make a little room where I can go paranoid or whatever. And I go, okay, you can go here for a while. And, you know, I have these sort of mechanisms to keep myself, I think, reasonably sane, uh, as I deal with this degree of complexity and trying to draw these connections and still respond to the world. What are some of the, 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 the strategies you've had, or how have you been able to, to navigate this? Well, you're right. I mean, absolutely. You know, I mean, uh, actually, I'm more interested in, in conspiracy practice than conspiracy, conspiracy theory. And, Can you uh, fix your mic a little bit? I think you're... I'm, I'm, I'm saying I'm, 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 I'm rather more sometimes interested in conspiracy practice uh, than theory. And this conspiracy practice uh, certainly involves a discipline, right? And uh, I mean, some of the disciplines you, you mentioned, uh, you know, there's certainly actually a lot of ways to sort of, you know, uh, train a little bit for these things. And uh, our friend uh, Hakim Bey was famously saying that freedom is a martial arts. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of a bit of a fighting uh, uh, sport. Uh, and, you know, apart from, you know, obviously whatever you would call meditation or, or kind of mental training, I think uh, humor is very important. Absolutely. Absolutely. I like that. The, mar the martial art of freedom. It's also one of the things, and I can say this because I'm in California, is one of the things that, you know, people often talk about cannabis, you know, people who don't like cannabis, they'll say that one of the reasons they don't like cannabis is it makes them paranoid. And when I, you know, I've been a cannabis fan since I was a teenager. And, uh, you know, even even back then, I would sometimes use cannabis precisely because it created anxiety and paranoia. And and so now sometimes, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll be high and I'll, I'll, I'll get all paranoid, maybe along the same kind of topics we're talking about. And I actually kind of enjoy it, not enjoy it like like I, I want to stay there forever. But it's almost like, ah, great. Now I have the fear. Let's go into it. Let's like, you know, you know, toughen up, if you will, in the face of this thing, because it's kind of like you're, it's just a passing, you know, a pharmacological cloud. But at the same time, it creates a sort of resilience. In my experience, it creates a kind of resilience uh, that enables people to do that. And I think that's one of the reasons people, some people turn to horror. Um, some people, you know, track conspiracy theories as a sort of, a research thing is to kind of like get a flavor for that 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 fear that you can ride because if you can start to recognize the fear and and even sort of enjoy it in a way then you're not going to be as automatic in your responses to it and that's you know you, earlier you said fear and longing fear and longing those are the core psychological forces that are organized by magic by sci scientists of control by propaganda and if we can sort of 
you know, work and get to know, especially the fear, because that longing is more complicated in a lot of ways, uh, because it's already bound up in so many consumer objects and it's 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 tough to navigate through longing i think in in some ways but fear is something where people are more willing to not develop a relationship with it they leave it very at a very undeveloped level in, in themselves psychologically and that makes them much more open to manipulation whereas taking on the fear the fear of death look at death in the face i'm going to die or the fear of con- being controlled the fear of being parasited by alien algorithmic systems, all of that stuff, you really, I think you really got to look it in the face personally to be able to be, stay somewhat awake in this environment that we're in. Oh yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, even though, you know, I must say I'm hesitant. I mean, you, you mentioned that you're in California, you know, and that's a little bit famous for its kind of, uh, um, let's say maybe hippie based industry of, of self-realization that, uh, you know, sometimes becomes a little bit of a disgusting banality, you know, and is is related to some of the problems uh, we we have. And we talked earlier about this kind of person, uh, of this concept of self-interest, you know. And then there's, you know, you you, you jump to become an Ubermensch and you basically land as a generic uh, jerk, you know. That happens. <laughs> No, no, I don't even think you need to qualify it. California is the place of, you know, narcissistic, uh, narcissistic self-realization disease. You know, I mean, it's 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 a big problem. But I think that within those practices and within those frameworks, there are still a lot of uh, resources for uh, resilience and and critique that are maybe not as obviously on the on the surface. I think it's important not to write off that whole world of practices because I think there's, uh, again, like resources in there that people or whatever practices in there that can help people uh, stay awake. But I'm very aware of how how much uh, the sort of spiritual search and the meditation and the mind tools and all of that can be plugged in to a, a very deep form of, of sleep and of just reproduction of capital drives and a, a kind of cruel self-realization, drive towards self-realization that is manifested in the kind of right-wing libertarianism of Silicon Valley, and we can go on and on. Uh, I mean, that would be a whole hour by itself, but uh, I'm just saying, you know, I, 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 you know, this, the, 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 the development in this field has become quite problematic, and even on the level of, of drugs, you know, I mean, I would uh, wholeheartedly recommend it, but uh, now, you know, things like LSD microdosing is a, a life hack for corporate drones to keep their emotional balance, you know. I mean, that's that's just one way of the thing. I'd, but I, I'd, I'd certainly go with, you know, what you were saying about horror, you know. I mean, uh, that that would be a good antidote for the Californian disease, you know. <laughs> because <laughs> horror, is, you know, is the genre where existential questions are actually formulated in, in form of media, you know. I mean, that's why... I've, Probably teenage teenagers are attracted to horror movies. I was, I know, because uh, you know it actually, you know, puts puts up questions that are not there, you know, uh, usually. And uh, horror horror genres thrive in crisis because it's it's a way to address the unknowable, right? And uh, so you know, it's it's not just uh, the realm of the of the feeble-minded. It's kind of uh, it, it holds a promise of, of, of a return of the real, uh, you know, by um, breaking the constructions of established realities. And so, 
what I was said, you know, anomalies, they are my friend. They are allies against enforced normalization and kind of transgress the categories of thought uh, and this, all these classificatory norms that we are subject to. Extremely well said, and and uh, uh, I, I you know I think that's that's really really key. And there's another element about horror that I that I think is really important is that in a lot of a lot of what happens in the horror is that something ends up being some a, a thing that's usually just a thing. It becomes a little bit more animated, and part of what's behind I think a lot of our conversation is a a sort of re- return a kind of critical return to animism where you recognize that things are alive, processes are alive, objects are alive, and you know you can you know you can have a sort of like hippie new age spin on that like oh yes you know all the ecology is alive and it's the ecological vision of that it can be extremely inspiring and life affirming and enriching and in fact i think that's partly our our loss of that worldview that has made us so alienated and screwed up a lot of the times but if you're really going to be an animist today or if you're really going to open up that world you have to go through horror as well because there's all of these you know, algorithms from hell. There's all of these machinic uh, golems of monstrous anti-life, you know, you thought the thanatocracy that you talk about, um, that's quite dist- deeply, deeply disturbing. And you can't have one without the other. Uh, and I, I think that's also part of the call of the horror film is it's a place for people to play with or try on their kind of animist imagination. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, people talk a lot now about the blurring of the boundaries between fact and fiction. And uh, and there, as you just said, you know, there's the, bo- the blurring of the boundaries between subject and object, you know, between things and us. And uh, I mean, that's that's a classic horror theme, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think I think we have to stop talking now, Conrad. It's our, our, the show is over. So uh, this has been totally wonderful. I, it's been great to talk to you again, and I'm so happy you continue to to do this work. So thanks so much for uh, for joining us on Expanding Mind. Great pleasure, Eric. Great, great. Okay, so that was Conrad Becker, and uh, you, you, links to his stuff will be on uh, on the uh, in the archive. And until next week, keep your minds open. Mm-hmm.